Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I do believe, especially in the opening verses, you're going to see a bit of a disparity between what today passes for a leader in the church, certainly an apostle, and how it really is. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we read here from the Apostle Paul, where he says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Turning adversity into achievement, that's the title and theme of this message today. But I want to point out to you some things here, just in case you're not really seeing it. We do not expect an apostle of Jesus Christ, especially one who was so used of the Lord, to write more than half of this New Testament, who at first was an enemy to the gospel. We don't expect him to say, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech. The wisdom that he's referring to is the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of Jesus. Because preachers are taught, you know, pulpit etiquette, which is certainly appropriate, and pulpit techniques, which the great orators throughout the centuries have practiced. And here he says, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. I didn't come to you with this imposing pulpit presence. And the wisdom, once again, he's referring to the wisdom of the world, in this case, Greece, the Greeks. You know, we have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and so on. He said, I didn't come to you with that kind of wisdom. And I didn't come to you as an orator. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, verse 3 is even more astonishing, I think, than what we just found in verse 1. Because we don't expect an apostle to say, I was with you in weakness. And certainly we don't expect an apostle to say, I was with you in fear. Apostles don't have fear. The great prophets of the Bible, they don't have fear. They're not like us. And yet we see here in the Apostle Paul his humanity. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. And then he adds in much trembling. In my understanding, there's something going on in his body that's causing some tremors. Not that they were there permanently, but as he first came to the city of Corinth in Greece, this was his presentation. This is not how we picture the heroes of the Bible. Even if we read the text, I think we have a tendency to still think of them as these imposing, different than every other human being on the planet, which they are in many ways. But we don't find, and let me say it this way, for those who use the title uh, apostle today uh, across the world, we don't see in the apostle Paul what we typically see in those who now call themselves apostles. He says, I was with you in weakness, and I was with you in fear, and I was with you in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, <clears throat> but there was the demonstration of the Spirit and a power so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let me just say quickly, 
when you live a spiritual life, what God does, and it's little by little, here a little and there a little, God destroys your confidence in the flesh. He destroys your confidence in yourself. This is why, to some degree, some of the motivational messages that we hear in Christianity in particular don't work well with the Bible because God's object is to make us weaker in ourselves so that we can be more dependent on God. And then, and we'll read this later, God willing, then we learn that when we're weak, we're actually really, really strong because we're depending on God. We're not depending on man. And I must add, and I'm sure you would agree, the instruments that God uses to weaken us, to get us to the point of, as we sang in the song, of actual despair. We sometimes object to the tools that God uses to get us to a place. And again, if you haven't been there, you will be if you're sincerely following the Lord. And for those of us who have been there and many, many times, you just cry out for God to deliver you. Because you've come to the place where you realize, and let me say it this way, that your life's out of control. Well, we can easily look at the world around us and say it's out of control, or at least out of our control. But I think it's even more troubling when your own life is out of control. And if you're wise, and again, if you're truly following the way of the Lord, then you turn to him, and you ask for deliverance, and you ask for freedom, and you ask for order. If you're sick, you ask for healing, and if you're distressed in mind, you ask for deliverance, and so on. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ. doesn't matter who contradicts it. doesn't matter who preaches to the choir. doesn't matter what the crowd says. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ. And it's not pleasant for the moment. But in your pain and in your suffering, you begin to get some of the deepest insights into your own life and into the word that you never would have gotten if God kept you comfortable. Now, comfort is what we want. I share that with you all the time. And everybody wants it. I want it. But God says, no, not for this season. Thankfully, there's seasons. For this next few weeks, months, or years, no. You're going to be highly uncomfortable, and you're going to get weak. Then God knows without saying to us directly, but as you're weak, you're going to call upon me more and more. And I'm going to fill you with my grace. And I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And you're going to be able to sing, he who began a good work in you shall also perform it right until the day of Jesus Christ. Are you feeling weak today? Well, let me tell you how to turn adversity into achievement. That's the first thing, is to begin to see your situation as an opportunity to grow. And if you don't, then you're going to just wallow in despair and waste the suffering, wasting it. So that at some point in time, you're just going to have to repeat the lesson. And again, this is for people who are serious about pursuing Jesus Christ, not Christianity, Jesus Christ. Not a religion called Christianity, Jesus Christ. God knows that as you're weakened, you'll depend on him more and more. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was an ad that ran in a London newspaper, and this is how it read. Men wanted for hazardous duty and constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The only thing this ad said, that was it, that was the whole ad. The only thing that this advertisement promises is that if you're successful, even if you don't return because you're dead, you will be honored and you'll be recognized. And what's really amazing is that thousands of men, thousands, applied for this position, of which only a few got, 
because it was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, the great Arctic explorer. Let me read it to you again. Men wanted for hazardous duty and constant danger, safe return doubtful. Think of getting on the ship with Sir Ernest Shackleton, <clears throat> though so many of them did come back, thinking that this is it. This is how I'm going to die on this expedition. Think about that. Many of you who have been in the military didn't sign on with that thought that this is it, I'm going to die. There was always hope. Shackleton was saying, you sign on here, there may be no hope at all that you ever come back. Honor in case of success, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, Warren Wiersbe, the uh, great Bible teacher, he took this example of Shackleton's advertisement and he put it onto the gospel. And I think there's something very, very important and notable to think about. When Wiersbe said, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this. Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood, even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not even see the results of your labor, and your full reward will not come till after your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. And I believe that Wearsby's imaginative advertisement fits so many scriptures here that we have in the New Testament. When Jesus said, I will build my church and you are laborers with me, he fully explained. It wasn't though he hid it. He fully explained what was going to be involved. Now, I don't want to go too far with the modern gospel that we have, not only in America, but across the world, in many places at least of this type of an idea of ease. And it doesn't matter where you are. You can be in one of the most remote and oppressed areas of the world. You could be here in America. The fact of the matter is, is that the laborer with Christ, which is all Christians, right? We went through communion just a moment ago and accented as we do. It's not just the things that we do that Jesus said don't do or God said don't do, but the things that we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing. When Jesus saved us, he says, you're going to be co-workers with me. But then I think Wearsby is correct. You won't always be honored, you know, sometimes, but not always. You're going to hazard yourself, your reputation, friends, a lot of things are on the line to pay the price to build the church of God. I was thinking of this statement, and it was attributed to Mother Teresa, but I'm not sure that she actually originated it, but it's a good statement. We were not called to be successful. We were called to be faithful. I've been with you for 35 years here. And around this country and around this world, from the outward appearance, there are churches that are much more successful. But over these 35 years of my life, which is now more than half of my life, I have always known that my calling is to be faithful. Faithful. But it's not just my calling. It's yours as well. We have no more time for convenience. We have no more time. I mean, God will comfort us. Don't get me wrong. But we can't be constantly begging God for comfort and comfort and comfort and comfort when he's already said. The way is narrow. It's going to be rough. Unless a man carry his cross and deny himself, he cannot be my disciple. That's the gospel message. How men preach over this, around this, disregard this. I don't know. My business is to be faithful to this word, faithful to my duty, faithful to my post. So help me God. And that's your duty too. Time for convenience, if there ever was one, and I don't think that there was, is over. 
We must now put our roots down and we must make sure that we are doing the will of God, regardless of what people say, even the people closest to you. So let's look at a definition of adversity. What is adversity? You may know by experience, but let me just give you the dictionary definition. A state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. Now, this is Webster's dictionary definition. A state of serious or continued difficulty. So I want to accent that part. Continued difficulty. Serious continued. Serious difficulties that just keep going on and on and on. That's adversity. That's what we're facing as Christians. That's what you're facing. And you're facing it on many, many fronts. Many fronts. But you were not called to be successful. You were called to be faithful. Faithful in all things. Faithful in praying. Faithful in knowing the Bible. Faithful in telling others about Christ. Faithful in inviting people to Christ and to church meetings. Faithful. The success is in the hands of God. The duty is in our hands to do our duty. Now, let me give you some suggestions on adversity. The first one is something that I practice. When I'm in the midst of adversity, when I'm in the midst of things that are coming up against me, my question is, what is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning? As I mentioned to you just last week, I believe it was, I believe at least that if I don't pass this test, it's only a matter of time before I come around and have to face it again. So what is the lesson, Lord? What am I supposed to be learning? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, listen to this. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also hath set one over against the other to the end, for the purpose, that man should find nothing after him. There's nothing beyond God. And so our seasons of prosperity, of ease, things are well, and so on, has a counterbalance of adversity. No doubt which one we're going to choose. But God has chosen that we have both. And he says, in the day of adversity, consider God has given you both these things. Job, as you know, was tested just about beyond his own endurance. The apostles were too, by the way. And they state so in the Bible. Pressed out of measure. Beyond strength. We despaired even of life. And I want to share this with you again. Apostles are not supposed to talk like that. Not by today's modern theology. But real apostles do. They're pressed so hard that they can despair even of their own life. And Paul frequently did, as did others. The prophets included of the Old Testament. Ask yourself, what is the lesson in this? What am I supposed to be learning? And just to give you a little bit of an aid, when we go back to the book of Job, we realize that this man was living, and this is in quotations, perfectly before the Lord. So if it's not some area where God needs to correct you for sin, there is still something he wants you to learn. And you must go before the Lord and say, what am I supposed to be learning here? Is it humility? Is it you're destroying my pride? Is it you're destroying my confidence in the flesh, in man? What is it I'm supposed to be learning? That's the thing that I do. And what happens with adversity, it often brings a measure of anxiety and of depression. <laughs> you see, again, some teachers tell us Christians don't get depressed. And that just, my friends, that is just a lie. 
You look through the Bible here, you see people like Moses and Elijah, you see them in despair. You see Moses on more than one occasion telling the Lord he don't want to be a leader. And we don't, see, we don't think of Moses that way. We think Moses is always on his game. He's always there. He never has a weakness. And that's simply not the truth. Read the Bible. It wasn't true what I just read you here from the Apostle Paul. It's just that they all learned how to stick with their duty and to depend on God. Now, a woman who's a neuroscientist, and she also happens to be a Christian, she wrote a book last year, the title of which is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. Five Simple, Scientifically Proven Steps to Reduce Anxiety, Stress, and Toxic Thinking. I want to read just a little bit from this book. She says, anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress are all ways of describing natural human responses to adversity and the experiences of life. Anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD are the human response to adversity. And we all face adversity, she writes, in many different ways. Challenging events and circumstances are as much a part of modern existence as they were a part of human history. Calling these mental and emotional responses diseases misses the point entirely. Anxiety, depression, burnout, frustration, angst, anger, grief, and so on are emotional and physical warning signals telling us we need to face and deal with something that has happened or is happening in our life. The pain, which is very real, is a sign that there's something wrong. You are in a state of disequilibrium. It's not a sign of a defective brain. Your experience doesn't need to be validated by a medical label. Mental health struggles are not your identity. They're normal and need to be addressed, not suppressed, or things will get worse. Now, I wrote one of my dissertations for my PhD on the Bible and mental health, and this is one of the things that I pointed out. Using secular sources, she's a Christian, using secular sources that say the same thing. A disease like cancer is a disease, but this idea of mental illness is questionable. I leave that to those who are going to debate that in their own circles where that's their forte. But the fact is adversity affects us all the same. And don't think your anxiety and depression because of troubles that you have and the adversity that you have is something abnormal. It's normal. Over my many, many years of studying this subject, mental health and so on, I often remind myself that I'm just a man. As much as a conquering general in Rome would have either a young boy or a slave behind him as they go through the parade and all of the laud and honor and accolades laid upon the general as whoever would be in the chariot with him saying, remember, you're only a man. Or also, all glory is fleeting. That was to keep the general humble. All glory is fleeting. Your response to adversity, if you're anxious, troubled, begin to get a little physically ill. Now, these subjects must be addressed, as she mentions, but their average experiences to the human being. Troubles come. As back again in the book of Job, it states that man is born into trouble as the barks that fly upward. We would have us to be eliminated from troubles, and there's plenty of teachers out there that will accommodate that type of thinking. But it's just simply not true. Ask yourself today, what is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning? Because remember, in Romans 8, 29, we are being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. 
In what way, Lord, is this lesson supposed to be making me more like Jesus Christ, imparting more of his life into me, so that as John the Baptist says, he may increase, but I must decrease. What are you trying to teach me? And you have to come through that by some reflection and by some prayer. Second thing I want to say about adversity, which I think is equally difficult in many respects, is that it tests relationships. Listen, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I think that we've all had the experience of believing someone was our friend, or perhaps even a true brother or sister, who when the pressure and stress was on, they were no longer around. I'm submitting to you that adversity will test those relationships. In a Christian wedding, for which I spent one whole session going over the vows with the couple, that you're taking a vow to stay together for the rest of your life, and there are some exceptions why a marriage doesn't work, but for better or for worse, I've not met too many couples that split because things got better. But they split because things got worse, and I can't take it anymore. If I were to remind them of the vow, they dismiss it. Forsaking all others. For richer, for poorer. I don't know of too many couples that have split because they were getting wealthy, richer. But I've known many who split because they were getting poorer. Then everybody's blaming everybody as to why they got poorer. And it just raises the question as to what was this vow all about. It was a nice day. It was a pleasant day. Everybody was happy. But what were they really thinking? I'll tell you what they were not thinking. They were not thinking about the reality of life. Things don't always get better. In fact, they rarely do. We see that one is set against the other. The prosperity in the time of adversity. Not too many people are going to split when things are going well, including in the church. They're going to split when things are not going so well, when it's no longer convenient. And then there's some pastor, some church that'll say, I'll make it convenient for you. What gospel is it you want to hear? What message is it you want to hear? And so they tickle their ears. The problem with that is that people listening to these type of messages are not going to be prepared for the reality of life. So many of you sitting here today have gone through some exceptionally difficult circumstances. And every day, nearly every single day, I hear more and more and more. But that's the reality of life. And adversity will test the relationships, which in the end is a good thing. Because honestly, how many of you really want to have people around you who tell you they love you, but in the end they don't really love you? How many of you want to be in a relationship with anybody that says, my commitment to you only goes so far? And when you're in trouble, I mean, if people were honest and they could foresee the future and you know, you're having a good relationship with your husband, your wife, your children, friends, whoever, people in your church that would say to you, now I just want you to understand that as long as things go well, I'm with you. But when things go bad in your life, I'm out. I'm gone. This years ago when I was younger surprised me. But now nothing much surprises me anymore. Because that's human nature. A true friend loves at all time. And a brother is born for adversity. I recently told someone who's in a bit of trouble to comfort them. The people who love you will continue to love you. Even in your adversity. And the people who do not love you will use your situation as an excuse to hate you even more. For me, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with knowing who is my true friend and who is not. 
Actually, I prefer it that way. Adversity will test relationships right down to husband and wife, children, pastor and congregation. I know of many, many pastors who quit, and they always, I said quit, and they quit with this very misleading statement. I think the Spirit of the Lord is leading me. In some cases, the Spirit of God does, of course, but in other cases, that's not true at all. You're simply quitting because it's getting too rough in the area that you were once dedicated to. Things aren't working out the way you thought, and they may not work out any further in the future, so you're leaving. For what? Greener pastors. Now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit does lead people, pastors and others, to different places. I'm just simply saying, adversity tests the relationship. Here's a pastor who has a trouble with the church. There's going to be a split. I was trying to help him out. And he began to entertain the idea that this is my time to go. I said, you've got people that have been faithful to you. You've got people who have been sticking with you through all of this. You can't quit. A year or two down the road, maybe, but not now. These people have put themselves on the line for you. You know what that's called? Loyalty. We have so little of it now. Loyalty. Anyway. There was, as you know, a renowned musical scholar, very successful musician, who one day, during the midst of his success, he wrote one of the definitive biographies on Johann Sebastian Bach. One day he was reading through Matthew, and he came across the verse that states that whosoever shall lose his life, save his life rather, shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And immediately he knew his calling was changing from being a musical scholar and so on, but that he had now to go and study medicine and go on the mission field. The thing about it was is that he was very proficient as a musician, but not very acclimated to the book work and learning everything that had to go into medicine, but he passed. And he went on to go over to Africa and help the least of the least, the suffering of the suffering. And we all know his name is Albert Schweitzer. He's a musical scholar. A very comfortable life if he stayed there. But he followed the command of Jesus. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And this is one thing that he said that's important for you and I on this subject of adversity. First of all, he struggled in his studies. Second of all, when he went to grow with his French missionary group, they opposed his Lutheran theology. And he made this very wise observation. Schweitzer said... Anybody who proposes to do good must not expect people to roll any stones out of his way and must calmly accept his lot even if they roll a few more onto it. Listen, only force that in the face of obstacles becomes stronger can win. That's adversity. If you don't know much about Albert Schweitzer, you probably didn't even know he was a musician and wrote one of the definitive biographies on Johann Sebastian Bach. But he wasn't given, oh, now that Albert Schweitzer is here, yeah, we'll help him through the medical school, pass the exams, everything's going to go smooth. Little went smooth from that point on. People will roll stones to stop you. And there'll be plenty of obstacles for the ones that didn't come from man. That's adversity. And it tests our relationships. But primarily it tests our relationship with God. We know that God will be faithful. Now the question is, will you? It's rough. It's rough to live as a Christian by the book at the moment. Well, it's not going to get easier. And so what we find people doing is compromising the scriptures. Let's make it easier. 
But how do you rewrite a book that God wrote? How do you amend the book God says, don't touch my word, don't change a word of it? Well, you don't. If you're smart, you don't. So this brings us to this point. Adversity is a test of your strength. Now, you can go into many organizations where your physical strength now, along with your mental acuity, has to be tested to see. You know, if you're going to go into the military, you have to be able to do so many pull-ups and sit-ups before you even get to boot camp. Proverbs 24.10 says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Isn't it easier to sit, well, sit here, sit anywhere and be, Amen! Amen. But it's out there that it gets a little bit more difficult to say, This is the day the Lord has made. This day of adversity is still the same day that God had made. I'll rejoice. I'll be glad in it. And I won't quit. I'll go through it. Because this is going to test my strength. You know what I did? I bought this little grip to test your strength, the strength of your hand. I didn't just buy it for myself. I bought it for some other people in the gym to say, hey, try this. You know, see what your strength is. See where you rate. And it's interesting, when you squeeze this, you may not come up as high as you thought. How's your grip? A good grip. You squeeze this thing, and it maybe brings you down a little bit less than what you thought because it tests your strength, your real strength, not your words, but not what you think. Adversity comes and tests our strength, and at least this is my experience. I find out I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And so many times I find I'm not as clever as I thought I was, even as Socrates began in his method of teaching to not accept students unless they admitted that they don't know. And the more that you study, you realize how much you don't know. That's what adversity does. It tests your strength of mind. It tests your strength of what you know, the scriptures of what you know of Christ. And you find out you're not as strong as you thought. We all know the term a sunshine soldier. I've been around plenty of them. Things are going well, they're there. But when the adversity starts to hit, that's the real test of strength. And so this scripture says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And that's not what you want. You want your strength to be great. You want your faith to be great so that when you go before the Lord and he says something to you about, don't bother me anymore with this healing of you, whatever. And you say back to him and say, wait a second, Lord. Now you've healed a lot of people here. I'm not going away till you bless me. Isn't that what Jacob did? Yeah, he did. It was a test. Jesus could have said to him, stop bothering me. And Jacob said, okay, all right. And he would have failed the test of strength. Importunate prayer is what Jesus taught. The widow who kept going to the judge, go back and back and back and back and back and back until finally the judge says, I don't fear God. I don't fear man. But this woman won't go away. So I'm going to grant her request and then Jesus goes on to say that this lesson is designed to teach men that they should be praying always and never to faint, never to give up. Although if you would be honest with me today, I'm quite certain many of you would agree you have been there and you've been there lately where you just want to give up. Find something that's easier. I don't even mean stop being a Christian. I just mean find some place that's easier. Find some place where pages of the Bible are just simply torn out. And the preacher won't talk about that. And then you're comfortable. But unfortunately, you're at a disadvantage. Because you're not being forewarned. Therefore, you're not going to be forearmed. And you will not be able to defend yourself when the time comes. And the time is coming. If you would be honest with me today, 
you would say you've been tempted to quit. You've been tempted to give in because the pressure is great. The grief is great. Sorrow is great. Pain is great. But in order to succeed, what you have to do is to embrace it. As I told you the story of my little friend there who asked me, don't you have any words of affirmation? Well, she's trying to do a plank. I said, I didn't know what she meant. Then I got what she meant, and I said, okay, fine. We don't quit. We don't give in. We don't give up. We like it. We embrace the pain. Pain is our friend. <laughs> you laugh, but that's exactly what I do. I will do this. I can do this. I don't care how I feel. And sometimes I'm so weak that I can even doubt my own words. And then ask the Lord, strengthen me. But I won't give in. I don't care if I keel over. I'm not giving in. Not going to quit. Not going to quit. That's the test of strength that you must pass. Now, please don't get offended. There's a difference between explaining your story and retelling it over and over and over again. Do you realize that most intelligent people can get the idea that you've suffered or been through a hard time, but that you wear people out? I just recently taught this on my daily show. People with nervous symptoms, anxiety, depression, and all these different things, they need to be aware of the fact that they're wearing their families out. They're wearing people out by the constant talk. And they say, well, that's not fair, Pastor, because I'm really suffering. And I went through that with my audience there on the other channel. Uh, yeah, of course, that's why I do a show. I'm sympathetic and empathetic. But you've got to understand, you've got to be considerate of other people. Some people just don't stop talking about one thing or two things, and they stay that way. Listen, I always tell people when you're sick, empathy and prayer and all that, but you don't have the right to make everybody else sick. You just don't have that right. And true nobility is to be able to withstand your own, and then you're going to find a lot of people surrounding you with empathy and with sympathy and with kind words and prayer, much more than when you've told this story a hundred times. I've had people tell me a story so many times, I already know the story. I can recite it verbatim. And what I'm trying to say to you as kindly as I can, adversity is testing your strength. Now you want to be able to embrace it and say, this is my friend. Adversity is my friend. Because you're not going to grow without it. Here's a man years ago. His name was Abe Parnell Bailey. And he was going to this orange grove. And he was examining the owner's oranges. And it was a time of incredible drought. And it was getting really bad. And the oranges were really about to die. And then a man who was there said, come on over, I want to show you my oranges. Same place. Now listen. But he said, my oranges now can go two, three more days without no water at all. Well, what was the secret to that? Well, the secret was that when they were young, he gave them very little water. And what they had to do without as much water as he could have given them, which he didn't, they had to drive their roots down deeper and find the water for themselves. What God is trying to do with you through adversity is to drive your roots down deeper into him, of course. We're not self-sufficient. Into him so that while others are fainting for lack of whatever it is, you're not because your roots are deep. Deep down. And so look at your adversity. You know, you're getting a little while everybody else is getting a lot. It's going to help you in the days to come, if not today itself, to have a depth inside yourself given by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God so that no matter what happens, you're not going to be moved. And you can survive more than others can survive. And many of you here, because again, I know you so well for so long, you've had a lot of adversities. That's God making you drive your root down deeper into the Word, deeper into prayer. 
so that when the storms come, or I should say when the drought comes, but others are drying up, you still got more in the tank. Which seems to be an apt point given the price of gas. <laughs> I have people tell me, well, it's going to be $5, it's going to be $6. I have a friend of mine who has a 20-gallon tank in his truck, and he did the math real quick. If it's $5, it's $100 to fill it up. Now, I'm not for rising gas prices, but I'll tell you this much. If the price of gas went to $500 a gallon, God will still supply. Amen. God will still supply. That's my belief. Can I prove it on paper? No. But I have it in here. I have it in here that when Elijah, when there was a drought and a famine, that the ravens took his food, found it, wherever they found it, and they brought it to him by the root Kirith. And finally that brook dried up. And God says, and I go over here, there's a widow, because that's what God does. He knows how to provide. God is not out of gas. And I'm not yet either. Because <laughs> I've got a couple more things I want to say here before I finish. I'm not advocating the irresponsibility of leadership. I'm just simply saying that God is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Embrace the adversity and be thankful for it. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked, for the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Psalm 94, 12, 13, and 14. We do today, and this is the spec ops phrase, we do the work today that others will not be able to do tomorrow. That's what God's working in your life. He's working in a toughness. He's working in a redoubtability, a root that goes deep into the word. And when the winds blow, as we read in Matthew chapter 7, and if the storms come and the floods come, your house is going to stand. The spiritual house. It's going to stand. I read something very interesting, and apparently this is true. I was reading how when a cow is born, somehow the calf recognizes that she's leaving her mother's womb and going out into a cold world. So they resist being born. How many of you said, if I only knew what I was getting into, I would have resisted being born. But the cow, evidently, the calf just knows, and this is what I've read, the calf knows that this world is going to be cold and it's not going to be warm. And so, of course, the mom forces it out. But a cow that is not resisting it is often stillborn. The point is this, only the dead go with the flow. The living are just like the salmon and others. They're always going upstream, always against it. They're embracing the adversity. They're embracing it and calling it a welcome friend. And I will submit to you, this is more than just a psychological technique. This is learning the lesson of what adversity really means. I've always embraced blessings, of course, and you go home happy with whatever comes your way that makes you happy. But it's only in the last, I don't know how many years, well, it's been some time, that I've learned to embrace adversity. That doesn't mean I respond well. That doesn't mean I'm in a good mood. It doesn't mean that. I'm not saying that. But it also means that I am not giving in to this. Give me a couple minutes to catch my breath because I'm embracing this. I'm not going to run from this. I'm going to let this build me and drive my roots down deeper. Because in the end, see, what's really being done here, we're not building a building. God is building people. When he said, I will build my church, he meant you. Amen. Not a building. Not some kind of empire. That's coming, the kingdom of God. He's building people. He's building you. Embrace the adversity. Embrace it. 
because it's actually your welcome friend. Not easy, but it is a friend that's come to make you strong. Let me tell you something else I've learned about adversity. I've learned that when adversity hits your life, there's only like one of two choices. One is it drives your roots down deeper, or the other is it starts to pull them up, and you never stay the same. When adversity hits you, it's impossible to stay the same as you were before the adversity hit. When adversity hits, you're either going to drive your roots down deeper, or they're going to be plucked up, and you choose which it is. Now, I'm saying this again. Adversity is not fun. We see this in the scriptures. No chastening for the moment seems to be joyous, but grievous. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's not fun, but it changes us and makes us stronger. And this principle runs throughout life. Now, you have to ask yourself the question today, do I really want to be stronger or do I really want to be comfortable? I would suggest you get stronger in the Lord because the days ahead are going to present us with some unbelievable challenges. I mean, at this very moment, the war in the Ukraine is ratcheted up again. And we know from the beginning that Putin has said in a very veiled threat that he would use thermonuclear bombs. We're talking about thermonuclear war. Well, he is. This strikes fear into the hearts of many, many people. For the one who has trust in Christ, at least for my speak for myself, I say to myself, well, one way or the other, one way or the other, this all has to come to a head. I spoke to a friend of mine, retired brigadier general who was on the Pentagon level, passed away now. He was concerned that the former president is going to get us into the war. <laughs> what a joke. He was concerned, I mean, really concerned, and very animated about it, that the former president was going to get us into war. And surprise, here we are. Here we are. But if I did not believe that God is truly in charge, I'd be worried, like so many people are. Then the Bible tells us, don't you fear their fears. Amen. Don't you fear their fears. Amen. Listen to this. This is very engaging an author by the name of Jim Collins, he wrote a book called From Good to Great. I think that was the title of the book. In the book, he interviewed a retired admiral, Jim Stockdale, who was the chief officer in the Hanoi Hotel in Vietnam, where, as you know, they kept the prisoners of war. During the interview with Admiral Stockdale, he said, who were the prisoners, POWs, that didn't make it? And his answer was very surprising, very shocking. He says, it was the optimists. The optimists? Yep, the optimists. Someone would always say, oh, we'll be out of here by Christmas. And Christmas came and went, never happened. Oh, we'll be out of here by Easter. And Easter came and went, and they were never let go. It was the others who set themselves for a long, hard battle that made it. The others who had what I'll call quixotic hopes. Try, I mean, sometimes you got to do that. I mean, you, you do that by nature. You say, oh, we'll be out of here in a couple months. Listen, especially those of you here today that are younger, if you don't get it in your head, this is going to be a long, drawn-out battle. If you think that we're going to have some type of turnaround come midterm elections or whatever, and just going to have a magic effect, you're greatly mistaken. Because anybody who signs on for righteousness has got a real task in front of them to turn this thing around. You know, ocean liners just don't do a 180. They've got to make a long, slow turn. And while we pray for a third great awakening, this in itself will be a process and take time. Now, if God breaks out, yeah, that's great. But then it creates another set of problems. How do we take care of all these new converts? You know, this type of thing. It's wise for you, in the sense of Stockdale's remarks, to not think, well, this will be over in a couple of months. This has been building up all of my lifetime, the state of our country. 
This has been building up ever since I was born. Our country's been split 50-50 from the days that I was a teenager. All of our life, America has been 50-50. It's been that way for quite a while. We need to understand this battle is going to be long and drawn out. And if you prepare yourself for that, you won't quit. You won't say, oh, a couple more weeks, and I don't know, if things don't change in a couple weeks, I'm done. No, all the way, all the time. So help us, God. I want to finish with this today. And this, once again, is a very engaging study and statement that deals with adversity. I was reading here an experiment done by psychologist Jonathan Haidt. And he came up with this exercise. Listen to this. Participants were handed a summary of a person's life, right? Biography. And asked to read it over. They did. The participants were then asked to imagine that the person was their daughter. And this is her unavoidable life story. This is how it's going to play out. Now, she hasn't been born yet. She will soon. And this is where her life is headed. Participants had five minutes to edit her story. So with their eraser in hand, they could eliminate whatever they wanted out of her life. The question for participants was, what do you erase first? If you knew the biography, if you knew your own biography, but if you knew the biography of your child, especially if they've seen troubled times and all these things that do happen, and you knew that ahead of time, what would you erase first that you don't want your child to see? But let me go further. What would you erase out of your own life that you would say, well, I don't want to ever see that again? Keeping in mind this old expression, you couldn't give me $1,000 for the experience, but I wouldn't give you a nickel to do it again. But that's life. And so with this in mind, the author here, Kyle Eilerman, he said that most of us would instinctively and frantically begin to erase the learning disability, the car accident, the financial challenges. We love our children, and we want them to live a life without those hardships, pains, and setbacks. We will all prefer our children's lives to be free from pain and anguish. But ask yourself, he writes, is that really what's best? Do we really think a privileged life of smooth sailing is going to make our kids happy? What if you erase difficult circumstances that will make them wake up to prayer? What if you erase a hardship that's going to show them how joyful to be in spite of any circumstance? What if you erase some pain and suffering that ends up being the catalyst God uses in their life that caused them to cry out to him? What if you erase a difficult circumstance that wakes them up to God's purpose for their lives? Then he went on to say this. It may sound harsh to say, but the number one contributor to spiritual growth is not sermons, not books, not small groups, is difficult circumstances. Then he goes on to say, I know this from experience, and I agree with him because so do I. The moments that I was closest to Christ were the moments I had the most difficulties in my life. And the moments when I thought I felt, you know, that's that feeling, you know, oh, feel his presence today. Were usually the moments I wasn't as close to Christ as I thought I was. It was when he withdrew his presence, in a manner of speaking, that caused me to cry out to God, where are you? God, what's going on? And then, at least in my case, for so many years in the scriptures, the scriptures just flow. And I'm reminded and I'm taught. If you took an eraser, here's an eraser here. If you can erase out of your child's life, ooh, I don't want this to happen, ooh. What about your own life too? See, don't you understand? Look at what brought me to Christ was severe adversity when I was a teenager. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. I'd be living for myself. Just live for myself. What brought me to this was adversity. What keeps me is adversity, not comfort. Are you going to embrace the adversity 
Or are you going to, forgive me, you know, I am your pastor. Or are you going to tell me that story for the 100th time today? So I may just say, I already know your story. Let's move on. You agree with me or you say, oh, you, Pastor Ray is, is really off. He's really nuts. Mm-hmm. I had that same brigadier general once tell me, he says, you know, you're crazy. I said, well, there have been rumors to that effect. <laughs> you know, there's some questions I ask you, but even before I ask, I already know the answer. You know, how many people are going through adversity today? You know, yeah, how many of you are being tested right to your limit? I'm telling you lately, I've told my wife, I'm being tested right to my limit. I mean that. You know, everybody's got to know their limitations. Tested right to the limit. But then that rope has a magical way of extending itself. I'm asking you, advising you, I should say, as your pastor, to embrace the adversity. It's making you a man of God. It's making you a woman of God. If your life was easy, you would be superficial. You'd have the applause of men and the accolades of men, but not the applause of God. That's what you want. We sang earlier, He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Little did we know the way he performs it is through the mixture of good times and adversity, and they balance. Let's embrace them both. You stand with me today? Father, we come before you this day And I, again, as the pastor, I know so many of the stories that are here, and they're difficult and scary, and there have been so many, many things. But today, God, we embrace the adversity. We're not so stupid to say bring it on, but we just know it's going to happen. It makes us grow, and it drives our roots down deeper. Father, help us today to be made into men and women of God, to not look for the approval of men or the applause of men, but to do what's right in thy sight. Help us, God. And we give you the praise, and we give you the glory, and we give you the honor today. Father, today, help us to shun a life of comfort and embrace the cross. Help us to consider adversity as a welcome friend who's come to make us more like Christ. Remind us to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And no matter what the day brings, to say, this is the day The Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Can you say amen with me this morning?